The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's, make, let's uh, start off with opening prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word today, that You have revealed to us absolute truth, and that You have done so through the medium of language, because language ultimately is based upon logic and is based upon meaning and being able to uh, clearly and lucidly ascertain what is being said and what the intended consequences are. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that they might uh, revolutionize our thinking to conform it to your word, that we might use it under the filling of the Holy Spirit to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Now, in these first verses of the first epistle to John, we begin with an understanding of the author's purpose. We have spent some time here, and rather than going back and reformulating verses 1 and 2 into a new translation, I just want to pick up a few points in verse 3 for emphasis. Let's begin by reading the passage. What we have seen and heard... We proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things, that is the doctrine contained in this epistle, these things we write so that our joy might be made complete. And this is the message that we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light And in Him there is no darkness at all. One of the first things that God did in the creation of the world in Genesis chapter 1, in the restoration of the planet, we're told that God separated the light from the darkness and He called the uh, light day. And the darkness he called night. God initiated human vocabulary with that classification. I want you to think a little bit about the meaning of words. A word describes something rather than anything or nothing. As soon as you classify something with a particular name you are immediately distinguishing it from all other things. For example, and this is one of the most remarkable things that the human mind does. When you start teaching your children, most of you have had children or been around babies and watched them learn vocabulary, that they learn a word like puppy, and they are able to look at all manner of puppies, whether they're big puppies or small puppies, They can look at, before too long, they can look at a car in a parking lot where there's a German shepherd and they'll say puppy and they know it's a puppy, not a cat. And they know what a horse is and that it's not a cow. 
And they, uh, what happens with vocabulary is the vocabulary classifies, restricts, and orders our thinking so that words have particular and specific meanings. Now, that's necessary for there to be any level of communication. The words in the one initiating the communication, the words in the initiator's mind have a particular meaning. When you or I say something, we intend to communicate specific information as opposed to any information whatsoever or no information at all. Now, sometimes we all know people who, when they communicate, they communicate no information at all. Their communication may mean anything at all, but for the most part, when we communicate, we mean to say something specific. And we assume that if the person hearing us speaks the same language, that when they hear the words that we are using, that there is a shared commonality of meaning. So that when we say, see the dog run, they know what we mean by dog, that it's a dog and not a cat, and that we are talking about running and not walking, not skipping, not crawling, and that because we have a common, shared frame of reference for the meaning of vocabulary, we can communicate. Now, the reason I say that is because that assumes in the very nature of language, two things that absolutely challenge the thinking of modern 20th century man. Now, here's where I'm going to stretch your brain cells just a little bit. The very use of a word implies absolutes, that there is some absolute meaning that is not subject to variation, debate, or uh, emotional interchange. And when I say dog, I mean dog. I don't mean cat. I don't mean cow. I don't mean man. I don't mean woman. I don't mean snail. I mean a cat. Now, so that implies that there is some absolute non-variable standard for meaning. The second thing that it implies is logic. You take a sentence. A sentence is what's called in the study of logic. It's a proposition. A declarative sentence is called a proposition. And it has meaning. It is inherently logical. For any two people to communicate at any level implies logic. You may not know a first thing about logic. You may not even be a logical person. You may not know the first thing about thinking, but the very fact that you can say the sky is blue implies truth. It is a statement that is either verifiable or falsifiable, and therefore it implies logic. That tells us that when the unbeliever who is operating on uh, an evolutionary Darwinian frame of reference that everything came into being by time plus chance plus the incredulity of modern man, that you take enough time and given enough variables that anything can happen. That The very fact that he can say that implies that he's wrong because the articulation of that statement implies both absolutes and logic, and logic and absolutes are inconsistent with the irrationality of time, any amount of time plus any amount of chance can produce anything. Now, I'm saying that because we live in a world that, that because of unbelief, which tries to deny that there is a God, and according to Romans 1, tries to worship the creature rather than the creator, there is an inherent contradiction in the way modern man thinks and the way modern man tries to understand meaning. We live in a time of extreme irrationality when it comes to trying to understand the meaning of anything. Last time I reviewed the history of how we got into this trap, it happened uh, at the end of the 19th or at the end of the 18th century in the philosophical system of a man by the name of Immanuel Kant. Up to that time, see, I'm going to, this is so important to understand interpretation and meaning of Scripture, I'm just giving you little nuggets of this 
uh, for about three or four weeks as we go through 1 John because it's one of the most, the interpretation of 1 John is one of the most debated facets in Scripture. And in order to get to understand why I say what I say, we need to have these little nuggets on interpretation. Some of you parents need to understand some of these things because your children are being uh, inculcated with a purely relativistic, if not, uh, in a sense we could use the term antinomian concept of interpretation in school that runs counter to what you're trying to teach them when it comes to the Word. And that's one of the interesting little um, uh, incongruities of our culture is that I know many, many Christians who want to go to a church where the interpretation of the Bible is based on a... Uh, a plain, literal understanding of interpretation where you do word studies, where you do syntactical analysis on the Greek and the Hebrew. And then when they get outside the church walls and get away from the Bible, the way they inter- want to interpret everything from, from literature to law, politics, history, uh, anything else, is done on a relativistic basis that is 180 degrees antithetical to what we're doing in church. One thing I'm arguing for is that if you're a believer and you believe the Bible should be interpreted literally, if you're going to be consistent with the ultimate assumptions that undergird that, then it's going to change the way you interpret everything else in life. So... We had a change at the end of the 18th century, and that doesn't mean that before that there weren't disagreements over interpretation. There were. There were a lot of disagreements over interpretation. You had, in terms of the interpretation of the Bible, you had Lutherans, you had Calvinists, you had Arminians, you had Roman Catholics, you had all kinds of differences of interpretation. Among philosophers, you had a lot of differences of interpretation. You had um, nominalists, you had realists, you had empiricists, you had rationalists. But one thing they all held in common, no matter how much they might disagree with one another on, 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 on their interpretation, they all agreed that there was an absolute, undeniable interpretation that man could know. Now, that's important to understand. They all believed that ultimately man could know this unifying interpretation, whatever it was, because they all believed there was out there an objective absolute that was knowable. After Immanuel Kant, nobody, intellectually speaking, in in academic circles, believes that there's an objective, unifying absolute out there that anybody can know. That is revolutionary. In fact, they called it the Copernican revolutionary in philosophy. Copernicus, if you remember, was the Polish astronomer who demonstrated that the universe doesn't revolve and the solar system doesn't revolve around the earth, but it revolves around the sun. In other words, after with Copernicus, you had a shift in the center of the solar system. What happens in philosophy, and the reason they call it Copernican revolution in philosophy, is because the center of thought shifted. The center of thought shifted from an external, knowable, objective, absolute, It shifted from out there to in here. It shifted from an objective knowable to an internal subjective criterion. So that meaning no longer was something that was uh, universal and absolute and knowable and therefore the same for everybody, even if we argued about what it was. Now, the only way you can know anything is just what you perceive to be true. So that this person's perception of truth would be 180 degrees opposite from this person's perception of truth, but ultimately where that's come to is they're both right because they're dealing with their perception and not any objective evaluation or any objective absolute. That has affected every realm of interpretation in life. It affects the interpretation of scientific data. It affects the interpretation of fossils, per se. It affects your interpretation of... uh, of uh, uh, biological species that affects your interpretation of whatever you discover empirically as you analyze cell structure. It affects other areas. It affects literature, profoundly affects literature. And in literature, what has come to be um, uh, dominate the interpretive scene in, in literature in, in college and university campuses is what is called deconstructionism. 
deconstructionism. And it is subjectivity run amok. It is emotionalism and experientialism carried to its furthest illogic possible conclusion and then deified and glorified as the absolute. So that when somebody today, when your kids go to the university classroom in English or in literature, they will be taught that in order to understand someone like, um, for example, the uh, Bronte sisters in the 19th century, that you have to understand that they were lesbians and then all of a sudden all their literature is being recast in terms of gay activism. Because what happens, what deconstructionism means is you go back and you look at the the person who wrote it and you have to deconstruct the literature in terms of all their values and their culture and, and take that out. And that rips it from any kind of objective meaning so that the words, the phrases, the sentences, the paragraphs that they wrote no longer are grounded in any sort of absolute meaning assigned by the writer. But now they are cut loose from any anchor of, of absolute meaning and they can mean whatever the modern interpreter wants it to mean. Now that has phenomenal implications for life. Because when, once you do away with that absolute, then there's no authority left for what's right and wrong about interpreting that particular piece of literature. See, before that, the writer is the authority. I said it means this. Whatever else you want to make it mean, it can't mean that because I didn't mean that. It means, it can only mean what the author intends it to mean. Once you do away with that, you're basically doing away with the authority that underlies the interpretation. So now there's no authority. So it's a, it's a, another aspect of this is it's a rebellion against authority. And the way that plays itself out in the classroom, you go to a college cl- classroom, the teacher sits there more like a moderator at a tea, ladies' tea club. And what do you think it means? What do you think it means? And everybody just sort of sits there and shares their uh, little or sometimes one or two have studied a little bit, but they share their ignorance. That, see, this impacts Christianity. Same thing happens in the Christian church. Uh, it didn't have the name deconstructionism 20, 25 years ago when I first saw it in churches. But see, it, these new names are just new names. You've always had problems with relativism and, and people trying to uh, import their own ideas into Scripture. But you see the same thing in many Sunday school classes around the country where where the teacher comes and sits down with the little Sunday school quarterly and uh, they pick out the passage and then they go around the room and uh, so-and-so, you read the passage. Now, what do you think that means? And then uh, so-and-so over here. Now, what do you think that means? And nobody studied the passage. Nobody knows the original languages. Nobody's even thought about looking at the historical context to see how that might inform our understanding, remembering that Scripture must be interpreted in the light of the time in which it was written. And so you end up with pure subjectivity. Now, the corollary to that is, is uh, that you end up with all of these different, quote, interpretations. And now what happens is that um, uh, somebody can come and say, well, you know, you say, Pastor, you say that means X. But there's a hundred different interpretations. So I think it means Y. Well, what, what you've just done, once you say that, that all the interpretations are equally valid, which is what that statement is doing, and what that practice does is that all interpretations are equally valid because, oh, we wouldn't want to offend little Janie or little Johnny by telling him they're wrong. Uh, you don't want to do that, so you, you use words like uh, inappropriate, but that doesn't apply to literature. So if that's your interpretation, that's great. So everybody's got their own interpretation. But if every interpretation is right, what does that mean? That means that no interpretation is right and that there is no meaning in life. See, that's why it's existentialism gone to seed. It's just, it, 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 is, it is almost the nihilism of, of, uh, of a Nietzsche. It's, uh, there's no meaning in life. There's no meaning in text. There's no meaning in anything. Now, how does that apply? We, we see when it applies to the Scripture, it's terrible because all of a sudden, in, in pure liberalism, Scripture can just mean anything. And once Scripture starts meaning anything, then God can no longer communicate. God can't communicate God's unknowable. 
And the only way we can know anything of absolutes is by looking internally and not looking externally. And so we all end up becoming Christian Gnostics. Um, the other thing that happens in this process is it, it destroys any concept of, uh, of uh, an anchor historically because now history doesn't matter. Uh, whatever anybody did in the 19th century, that's great and good for them, but it has no bearing on us. So we play out the dictum of Georg Hegel that we learn from history, that we learn nothing from history. And the result of this is it puts us as a culture on a sea of subjectivity. Now, the greatest example of this now, and I'm not using this because of, uh, for, for any kind of, quote, political agenda, but because it is such a display for us of where this works itself out culturally. We saw a tr- the tremendous example of this happened with the election in the, in the fall. And again, I, the battle wasn't, you'll hear people say that, that the Supreme Court gave the election to the Republicans. That's not true. What you saw here was the, the radical opposition between a modernist and postmodern view of interpretation, which was displayed by the Florida Supreme Court. And the, the, the postmodern view of interpretation is deconstruction. It, the author's intended meaning is irrelevant. What matters is the meaning I assign to it. So, so the meaning of literature now becomes extremely fluid from generation to generation, whether you're talking about uh, Charles Dickens and A Tale of Two Cities or whether you're talking about um, uh, Hemingway or, or whoever you're talking about, Joseph Conrad or whomever, the meaning is going to change from generation to generation because the reader changes. And so what it, what it meant in one generation uh, it, it can be A and then in the next generation it can mean non-A because there's no objective value anymore. And when you take that concept and you apply it to the Constitution or to law, which is always historically, well, at least until the late 19th century, were treated as literary documents and were to be interpreted according to the normal rules or what they call canons of interpretation, the normal standards of interpretation. But see, by the middle to late 19th century, Kantian subjectivism had begun to work itself through all of the different disciplines in the university so that it worked itself out in the interpretation of law. And that's what gave rise to what's called now judicial activism, where you have judges who are sitting on the bench who are interpreting a law instead of applying law. And if they're operating on a postmodern view of interpretation, then basically what they're going to do is reinterpret the Constitution, so the Constitution becomes a living, fluid document, as opposed to something something that is that is absolute. And all I am arguing in this—that's just an illustration. All I am arguing in all of this is that to interpret anything, the ultimate meaning is the author's intended meaning, and the way you arrive at that is by analyzing the literature. You look at the words. You understand the words, you do historical word studies, understand the meaning of the words as they were used in the time and place of the writer. That's why we get into things such as what we call isagogics or historical background. And we do word studies, and then we do syntactical studies. And the author displays his intention, his meaning, his purposes, and those clues are given inside the literature, whether it's the Bible or whether it is your instructions to fill out your... um, uh, income tax return, or whether it is reading a novel, there are uh, certain standards for interpretation, but these have been thrown out now and are being rejected, and it's a sign of a reaction to authority, a rebelliousness towards any kind of absolutes, and it, the result is you end up with a society that is operating on pure pagan relativism and is a sign of implosion of that culture because it's a rejection of all meaning. Of course, nobody can live on the basis of that because as soon as you start talking to your neighbor or your wife, you immediately are operating on a literal plain interpretation concept. But um, we can't live on the basis of deconstruction, otherwise we couldn't communicate with anyone. Now, the reason this is important is because when we come to a passage like this, and First John, we have to understand it in terms of key words. 
And that's where our study always starts. And in 1 John 1, 3, we have the first key word, which is fellowship. 1 John 1, 4, we have another key word, which is joy. 1 John 1, 5, we're introduced to two more key words, light and darkness. We have to understand those words as they were understood by the Apostle uh, Apostle John, how the Apostle John used those words. It's not relevant. It may be illustrative, but it's not relevant to what he meant, what the Manichaeans meant and by their use of light and darkness in the 4th century A.D. It may be illustrative of what the Gnostics and the false teachers were communicating to go in and do some historical background on Zoroastrianism and Persian dualism in relationship to understanding light and darkness because that was what was influencing the false teachers in the congregation. So you have to do that kind of work. You have to, but the primary thing you have to do is look at what the scripture teaches on these concepts because what informed the thinking of the apostle John more than anything else was the Old Testament. And so the way you arrive at meaning is by looking at how these words are used. Now, last time we went through the study of fellowship, and we saw that in fellowship that it does not mean social interaction among Christians. That's how we normally use it. In fact, if you look the word up in the dictionary, fellowship is defined as meaning the condition of sharing similar interests, ideals, or experiences, uh, the companionship of individuals in a congenial atmosphere and on equal terms. Uh, It also means a close association of friends or equals, sharing similar interests, friendship, and comradeship. Now, that's how, if you look the word up in the English dictionary, that's what the English word fellowship means. But that, and and we use that all the time, we're talking about Christian fellowship. But that is a badly misunderstood concept because it is usually associated with what we did between the first hour and the second hour, going downstairs, visiting, getting to know one another, how you feeling, what's going on, have another cup of coffee, have a couple of uh, uh, cookies to expand the waistline, and that's Christian fellowship. But that's not what the Bible calls Christian fellowship, and we looked at various passages last time to illustrate that. But one thing I did not do, and that was to illustrate its, its meaning, from this passage. We must remember Christian fellowship is not Christian social interaction, but it is based first and foremost on a relationship with God that that is based on an understanding and application of right doctrine and uh, having right behavior. Look at this passage. The verse demonstrates this. John says, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. Now, in all of our study of this, we've seen that the main verb in the first five verses is this proclamation on Angeleo. We proclaim something to you. That something is a message. It has content. It is the doctrine that is communicated in 1 John. Now, doctrine is a bad word for some people, but doctrine means teaching, and it's a good word, and it's a word that's used in the Scriptures. So what we have seen, what we've heard, we proclaim to you also. So it's the content of the message. It's not just a little bit. It is the doctrines related to the person and work of Jesus Christ as applied to the spiritual life of the believer that's what is contained in this epistle. Everything from 1 John 1, 1 to the last verse in 1 John 5 is what we are communicating to you. That's the message. It's called the message of life in verse 2, which relates to the fact that this is necessary to experience the abundant life, the Christian life of the believer. So he is saying, what we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. The doctrine we're communicating is necessary. Why? That's the purpose clause in verse 3. That you may have fellowship with us. Notice, he's saying, if you want to have fellowship with us, you have to understand, believe, and apply the doctrine that's in this epistle, or there's no fellowship. Folks, that's not having coffee and cookies. That means that fellowship is something in the Bible that is profound. It is something that is not superficial. It's not something based on emotion. It's not even something based on the fact that since you trusted Christ and I trusted Christ, we had, we're in fellowship with one another. There's something much more to it than that, and it's based upon an understanding, uh, an, an understanding, a belief in, 
and an application of certain doctrine. Now, this, does, this is not the, an advanced understanding of doctrine. This is basically related to understanding the person and work of Jesus Christ and the importance of staying in fellowship with him as, as part of advancing the spiritual life. If you understand that, then we're in basic agreement and we can go forward. We have the same frame of reference. And so John is saying, if you uh, agree with us on this and you believe this and are applying it in your life, that the things that we are explaining in this epistle, then you have fellowship with us, us referring to him primarily, an editorial we is what they call it, uh, and secondarily, the apostles. And then he says, and indeed... Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He's talking about fellowship with God for the believer. Now, how do we know that? We know that because this is a system, uh, he's using a, an allusion to logic here, that if A equals B and C equals B, then A equals C. So if I am in fellowship with God and I'm an apostle and I'm in fellowship with God, and you're in fellowship with me, then the logical conclusion is that you're in fellowship with God also. And that's his point, is that as believers, we have to maintain fellowship with God in order to advance in the spiritual life. And maintaining fellowship with him is not just based on right behavior, but it is also based on right doctrine. In other words, if you're out there living a moral life and even confessing your sins, but you have a wrong view of the person and work of Jesus Christ, you're not in fellowship. You're not in fellowship with the apostles because you've got false doctrine. And this is not, I'm not talking about fine-tuned aspects of the doctrine of the person and work of Christ, just these basic deity, humanity, the hypostatic union, substitutionary atonement. That's the, that's ultimately what, what John is speaking of here. So he is saying that fellowship is more than social interaction with Christians. It's not, he's not emphasizing relationships with people. He's emphasizing relationship with God and that relationship with God must take priority over relationship with people. And relationship with God is based upon not only uh, at salvation, faith alone in Christ alone, but for continued fellowship with God, you must understand the word of God and, be, and believe it and apply it. This is his purpose, the purpose statement, one of the purpose statements for writing this epistle. And then he gives the, and that's the reader-oriented purpose statement. In verse 4, he gives a purpose statement relating to himself. He says, in these things we write. Now, the these things is an interesting term. The these things is, relates to the doctrines contained in this epistle. It relates to understanding the propositions that he communicates. And in order to understand that, he assumes that there is some level of commonality between himself and the readers, and that by investigating vocabulary and syntax and sentence structure and thought organization, we can come to a correct understanding of what John says. And that there is a correct understanding of the first epistle of John, and everything else is incorrect. And he says that if you understand these things, then you will be in fellowship with us. And these things we write so that, second purpose clause, our joy. Now, this is a first person plural here. Our joy may be full. So this is the purpose that the author is writing. The purpose for the reader is that they may have fellowship with us and with the Father. And the purpose that he's writing is so that his joy may be made complete. And then again, we have our Greek word, teleao, meaning to brought to completion. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, there are two categories of joy. This is something we need to spend some time on. There are two categories of joy in the Scripture. One is emotional and has emotional dimensions, let me say that, and one does not. Don't confuse the two. One of the big problems we have today in Christianity is a lot of confusion over emotion. And we want to make, there are two mistakes. Number one, we want to make emotion a criteria for spirituality. Now, that's exhibited in moderate and extreme forms. The extreme forms are what we sometimes think of associated with uh, 
certain overt demonstrations. You have this thing called the Pentecostal or the uh, Pensacola revival down in Florida where people are running up and down the aisles and laughing in the spirit and jumping over pews. And I understand there's a couple of congregations here locally that have uh, gotten caught up with all that craziness. And that's the overt emotionalism that, that, that is, is sort of extreme. But in, in, in our circles, and in our, by our circles I mean the more conservative, non-charismatic, evangelical, fundamentalist circles, there is a much more subtle form of emotionalism. And that is a kind of emotionalism you'll run into in a lot of churches where there's this idea that there's a certain emotive frame of reference that is identified with being spiritual. And the pastor will talk in a softer voice. And the hymns that you sing are, are designed, they have sort of a soft, lilty kind of music. And, and they sort, you'll see people almost have a tendency to want to sway back and forth a little bit. Like the, the course, we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. And, and everybody just sort of wants to hold hands and just have a big warm fuzzy. And um, because this is sort of this underlying assumption that if I have a certain emotive framework, then I am more spiritual, I'm more, I'm closer to God, and I'm more open to learning spiritual things. And that, and, and, and where that goes is that affects a church's theology, whether they call it that or recognize it or not is probably debatable, their theology of worship. And now what's happened is we've lost the term worship. The highest form of worship is teaching and learning the Word of God. Now worship has been co-opted by, by the, uh, the uh, what I would call the uh, postmodern uh, uh, Christian types or their, their, uh, the, the compatible people because they bought into that kind of thinking, is the, um, the, the idea that, that in music, somehow I need to get the congregation into this frame of mind. Then we can have worship. So worship is being redefined as music. And so churches have worship leaders and they have worship teams. And a worship team is usually a lead guitarist and a bass player and some uh, good-looking blonde who has a high soprano voice. And uh, they just get up there and sing and the congregation can't, may or may not follow along with them. And that and they sing certain kinds of music, mostly contemporary choruses, that are designed to sort of put people into this um, loosey-goosey, ethereal sort of mindset so that they can go home and go, wasn't it good to have been there this morning? I just feel so close to God now. See, there's not any doctrine communicated there. It's not based on content. It's not based on any absolutes. Ultimately, what's happened is there's been this real subtle slipping in of this criterion that that spirituality is is evaluated by how I feel. And so emotion becomes that, that criterion. But there's a right and proper place for emotion. God created us. We as human beings we have emotion. Emotion is the response or reaction to positive or negative things that go on around us. And often they are clues to what we're thinking and what we believe are many other factors, but they are not a criterion or evaluation system, and we should not make decisions in life based on emotions. That's when we get into trouble. But there's nothing wrong with emotion per se. You read through some sections of the Scriptures, and they're rich with emotion. You read some of the Psalms, especially when David is just getting the tar beat out of him by God, and, and everything's falling apart, and he's, he's in massive depression, and he's aching, and his bones are aching, and his joints are being pulled apart, and he says, you know, Lord, I just feel miserable. And then he, in the process of those lament psalms, he gets to a point where he focuses on the essence and attributes of God, and he shifts from this self-absorbed whining focus on his internal, on his own personal problems, to all of a sudden he's focusing on the immutable absolutes in the character of God. Once he focuses on that, his emotional state of mind changes, and then he's exalting and praising God by the end of the psalm. See, the emotions change because of the focus of the mentality of the soul. Not The emotions are not the autonomous leader of the soul, and when we start doing that, then we get into all kinds of uh, uh, subjective problems. So when John is writing here, he's not just talking about the, that inner happiness Jesus promised us. He's also talking about the fact that he's going to be downright happy 
if these folks he's writing to get with the program and go forward in the spiritual life. And there's nothing wrong with that. I get excited every now and then when I talk about this congregation because I think that, that uh, uh, most of the folks here are really positive to the Word and they want to grow in the spiritual life. And that's something to be proud of and something to be excited about. And, and it's not so, well, oh gosh, I don't want to be emotional. My goodness, we'll just talk about it in hushed tones. You know, and, and, and there's a lot of examples of this. First of all, let's look at some examples in the Scripture of the absolute of inner happiness. This is an inner happiness that is based on doctrine and that gives us stability no matter what the circumstances are. This is a product of the fruit of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit in our lives, Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. The second production aspect there is joy. Same word that we have here in 1 John, kara, and, and it is not a joy that is based upon circumstances. It's not a joy that is based upon the presence or absence of a friendship or uh, monetary prosperity or success or any other human factor. It is something that is based exclusively and totally on the work of God and orientation to His plan and orientation to grace. It's a joy that we can have that no matter what's going on in our life, we can experience this kind of tranquility, contentment, and stability, and we are not rocked off our feet by negative circumstances. But at the same time that we have that kind of joy, we can also be sad. There's a legitimacy to emotional sadness. Paul said in the First Thessalonians chapter 5, but we, when there's a loss of a beloved one, we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. We grieve. We do. We're sorry. But at the same time, we have, what, the fruit of the Spirit and joy. So it's, it's like this dichotomy there. At the core of our being, there is tranquility and contentment and joy, and yet there's also sadness and sorrow at a loss, but it's not like the unbeliever. Jesus talks about this, this unchangeable, immutable joy that is ours as believers. John 15:11. These things, that is the doctrine that he's teaching in the Upper Room Discourse, similar to the, these things that John is explaining in 1 John, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Jesus' joy never increases or diminishes. It is immutable. It never changes. It is perfectly stable no matter what creatures do or don't do, how obedient or disobedient we are. That's the kind of joy that he has bequeathed to us, what we're calling inner happiness, which is a non-experiential happiness, a happiness based on a doctrinally grounded frame of thinking. John 16:20, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. He's talking about what will happen when he is crucified. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. John 16:22. Therefore you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And no one takes your joy away from you. That point there is that no circumstances, no people, no events, no adversity can take that joy away from us as believers. It is immutable. It is that my joy that Jesus gave us. John 16:24. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be made full. Once again, he's still talking about that immutable joy. John 17:13. Now I come to thee. These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy made full in themselves. His joy is unchangeable. It, is, it never diminishes. It never increases. It is rock solid. Romans 14:17. Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy by means of the Holy Spirit. Once again, this is the fruit of the Spirit, the stability of that which is produced by the Holy Spirit. First John, um, then we come to those passages that talk about inner happiness as relative to circumstances. Let me read some to you. Acts 15.3, Paul says, Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. See, that's not the my joy Jesus is talking about, but this is the enthusiastic excitement that is produced when believers hear that somebody's led somebody to the Lord and we're excited about it. It's an emotional joy. It's positive. It goes beyond. It, one way we could, we could chart this on the, uh, 
overhead would be by two concentric circles. Believer advancing in doctrine is going to have inner happiness at the core of his thinking. So no matter what happens, there's that stability. Surrounding that, he's going to have relative happiness or experiential happiness. He may be experiencing a true emotional exaltation and happiness due to certain circumstances, or he may be sad, but at the same time, it's not a devastating sadness because this inner happiness never changes and gives us stability in the midst of any crisis or heartache in life. Uh, Romans 15.32 is another example of this. Paul said to the Romans, Though that I may come to you in joy by the will of God, he was truly excited, anticipating coming and ministering to the church in Rome. 2 Corinthians 7.13, he says, For this reason we have been comforted, and besides our comforted, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So this is talking about the fact that, that Titus had... Uh, some very positive and exciting things to say about his visit to Corinth, and he was quite pleased because having dealt with this problematic congregation who were as carnal as any group and as troublesome as any group, Titus finally got there and realized that they had gotten squared away on doctrine, and boy, that's a relief, and it's it's exciting to see the fact that the grace of God is working itself out there. So that's an experiential joy. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul says for... Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? Something to be excited about is to see believers who are advancing in spiritual maturity. Further, he said of them, you are our glory and our joy. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? And then when he wrote to Timothy, he said, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I might be filled with joy. See, that Paul already had inner happiness. But he was going to be pleased and excited when he got to be with his friend and his protege, Timothy. It would bring him a level of relative happiness and joy. And that's what John is talking about in First uh, John chapter 1. Verse 4, that our joy might be brought to completion. Not talking about inner happiness. He's talking about the fact that these false teachers have been a problem to these congregations, that some of them have been seduced by the false teaching, and Paul's writing these things so that we can believe them, apply them, it will change our lives, and to see that bring him pleasure. And there's nothing wrong with talking about that. That is a legitimate role of emotion. It's not the basis for life, and it's not a criterion for life. And we have to guard against that because we live in a society and a culture that is motivated by experientialism and emotion, and people play to emotion, especially politicians. I don't care what stripe they are. They, they learn to play to emotions. You see this in television commercials. The commercials, the images that we see are designed to appeal appeal to our emotions and for us to make emotional decisions as opposed to uh, content decisions. That's, that's fundamental to all advertising. I forget the exact figures, but I think that, that um, uh, back in the uh, 1870s, uh, you could, uh, I think that, that a, a single cigarette roller could roll about 700 cigarettes a day. And so there was a, the, the market was glutted because they could only create so many cigarettes. And some guy developed a cigarette machine that would roll cigarettes, and all of a sudden one machine could roll 7,000 cigarettes a day. So if you had uh, three machines, you could meet the entire market for cigarettes in the United States. This was about 1873, 1874. Well, now that we've got these machines, we've got to create a market. For cigarettes, this was really the beginning of the entire, uh, the whole advertising industry. Is that they, now they had the technology that could create a supply that was far beyond the demand. Well, we had to create a demand, so it gave birth to the advertising industry. And you can go back and look at newspapers and magazines between the late 1860s and the mid 1880s and see the change. And all of a sudden you have all these positive images that people started using and the, the names of products began to change 
You go, it, it's fascinating to go back and look at the names that products had because they weren't that, that emotionally appealing. Uh, and you, you would see things like, you know, Joe's shop, you know, it wasn't anything real fancy. And now they would come up with, uh, terms and, and phrases and, and, uh, and labels that were attractive and made you think, and, and words like luxury, everything all of a sudden started being the key to luxury because people were coming out of the Industrial Revolution. They wanted, they could improve themselves. There was more money towards the late 19th century, and so they wanted to be identified with an upwardly mobile society and luxury. So no matter what it was, if you slapped luxury on it, it appealed to that lust. So emotional appeal became is a foundation for advertising. The point I'm making is that we have to be very careful. There's a right place for emotion and a wrong place for emotion. And one of the reasons I continually hammer away at this is because we are hammered away day in and day out by a pro-emotional culture that surrounds us. And so I try to emphasize, almost go too far to the other extreme, to rein us in, pull us back so we don't make these kinds of emotional Decision. The Christian life is not based on emotion. It's based on thinking doctrine. That's what John is getting at here. Fellowship is not some kind of emotive, social thing because believers get together and we just have such a wonderful time together and just because we've all had this common experience of salvation, we ought to all just uh, put our arms around each other and have some warm, fuzzy, big hug. And that's what is so often presented in Christian circles today. And the danger with this there are two big dangers. The first is that what happens is church teaching, music starts being manipulative in order to get people into some sort of assumed state of mind, emotional state of mind that's identified with, with um, spirituality. And the other danger is that it produces a superficial view of the Christian way of life. And if there's one major problem today among evangelicals, it is that there is an extremely superficial view of Christianity, the Christian way of life. And when you're operating on that, all of a sudden uh, adversity strikes. Uh, it just knocks you flat on your back and you have no nothing to rely on because all that you've had up to that point is this kind of superficial sentimentality rather than any kind of deep, profound teaching of doctrine. That brings us up to the next verse, which is one of the most important interpretive concepts in the book, which is introducing us to the concept of light and darkness, and that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all, and that introduces us to the essence of God. So we'll begin there next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for Your Word, that it is so clear to us and that we can understand these things, and that You have clearly and lucidly communicated to us. Father, you have made it clear that your plan of salvation is based on uh, who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. And salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here without faith, without hope, and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that right now you would make that clear to them that their salvation is based on simply accepting the free gift of salvation. They have to believe that Jesus died on the cross for them was buried and rose again on the third day. Father, we pray for the remainder of us that we would take the challenge of John that we are to understand, believe, and apply that these things, the doctrines of this epistle, that we might have fellowship with you and advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.